Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. We're going to study God's Word in a moment, so if you would go ahead and get your Bible open to Psalm 48. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to say what a joy it is to get to be here with you all. Uh, my, my older brother, Paul, he's two years older than me, and he uh, has just made so many names in this room household names. So I feel like I knew you coming in, uh, and he's just been talking about you. Most of it's good, uh, but... But then he was, if you saw me this afternoon, he was just dragging me around one place to the other. Like, you got to meet Mike. You got to meet that guy over there. You got to meet this lady, right? So it, it's just a joy to get to be here with you all and to experience the times of, of worship this morning and the time. And the, weren't the sessions this morning just outstanding? Man, I was so well fed. I told somebody at lunch, I was like, I'm ready to go home. Like, I'm, I feel enriched by the word of God and edified and built up and passionate for uh, the nations. So it's just a privilege and a joy to get to be here with you all. Pastor Matt, it's, it's been, we haven't known each other for very long, but I do sense just a, a deep kindredness with this brother. Uh, even so the first session this morning, listening, and I remembered a quote from one of the great preachers of the 20th century is a, a British preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. And I thought about that Martin Lloyd-Jones quote as I listened to Matt Bell preach the word this morning. It was logic on fire, biblical logic on fire. Uh, And I praise God for this brother and for just the legacy of ministry and the Bell family. So some 30 years ago, I happened to spend an afternoon on this stage with Dave Bell. And my brother introduced us because Paul was at IBC. So just a confession, I didn't go to IBC. I think I'm one of the only guys who gets to speak here who wasn't at IBC. Uh, But I'm related to somebody, right? So anyway, uh, but I I spent the afternoon and got to meet Pastor Dave Bell. And I was just over the moon. That it, it It was like he just cleared his afternoon and said, let's just hang out. Let's talk about the Lord. Let's talk about what it means to have a pure heart in worship. And I just sat up here. And we talked about the Lord. We sang. We turned the keyboard on in this room. He sp- I remember verbatim some of the words Pastor Dave Bell spoke to me on this stage 30 years ago. So the deposit just of that one afternoon was, was rich for me. And it's just a privilege and a joy to get to be with you all here tonight. So uh, here's, here's my burden for our time. My, my burden for our time tonight and tomorrow night. Lord willing, the Holy Spirit helping me, helping us, is to fill our eyes with two glorious realities. The glory of God in the church and the church of God in glory. So tonight, the glory of God in the church from Psalm 48, and tomorrow night, the church of God in glory. I'm going to pray before we study our text together. Keep the Bible open. We're going to be working through it for a little while. So join me as we pray. Father, your word is the richest gift that you have given to the church. Short of the Savior, you have given us letters from home. You tell us which way is up. You tell us who you are. You introduce yourself to your people in your word. It is your self 
revelation. So I pray tonight, as we look at your word, we would see the glorious God shining out of the pages of Scripture. That that you, Holy Spirit, would reach up out of the pages of our Bibles and pull us into glorious things. Change us by your almighty power. Do wonderful things that get you glory in the church and glory in all nations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 48, if you'd follow along, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarsus. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Here's the big idea. I'm going to lay it out up front and then we'll work on it from God's word together. The presence of God among the people of God fuels the mission of God. Let me say that again. The presence of God among the people of God fuels the mission of God. The church, I know this won't be new to any of us. I'm just stirring you up by way of reminder. The church is God's plan A for reaching every nation on earth. And there's no plan B. It's going to be the church or bust. God backs and underwrites his people by giving us the power of his Holy Spirit. That's why there, the end of the gospel words, right? He's, he's saying, wait for it. And when you get it, you're going to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. You're going to receive power and you're going to start talking. And you're going to keep talking further and further and further out until the whole world knows it until the whole world worships Jesus Christ. You ask the question, think about this with me. Because Psalm 48 is marinated in the church. It is the glory of God in and among his gathered people. So ask the question with me. Think about it. What is the church? The church is the most significant enterprise on planet Earth. The church is Christ's bride. The church is the apple of his eye. The church is the assembly of the people who have been adopted by the Father 
bought by the Son and made alive by the Spirit. Awesome things are going on when we're talking about the church. What is the church? The church is sinners counted righteous. Sinners wearing robes of righteousness. You'll never need another one. It'll last you all the way to the end. We receive a robe of righteousness. What is the church? The church is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The church is a people who are bound for glory. Bound for Zion. Bound for the new Jerusalem. And the church is a people with a purpose. So you think about the phrase, the kingdom of God. In Scripture, kingdom of God is just shorthand for God is taking the world back. God is taking his world back. And guess what the church is? The church is that people through whom God is reclaiming the world for the glory of his name. It, it is so much. You know, people talk about this all the time. I want to be a part of something bigger than I am. You want to be a part of something bigger than you are? You want to be part of something cosmic? Join the church. Join the mission. Throw your shoulder into the mission that God has been about since page one of the Bible. Friends, when all is said and done, what is the church? The church is this. God will have worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group, and we will join our voices, countless millions, we will join our voices in praise to God and to the Lamb on the throne. The geographic center of the New Jerusalem is the throne of Christ. And friends, it's going to be awesome. So what do you want to live your life for? Some other end or that one? Because God's word gives us this vision, this goal, right? Psalm 48, basically, if I could put Psalm 48 in terms of the effect it has on my own life, it creates this Simple confession, this simple statement. I read Psalm 48 and I say with tremendous bone deep conviction, I believe in the church. I believe God believes in the church. The church is God's idea. He has established it and nothing will be able to stop it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You know, it would, have been, it would have been hard for me to grow up and not catch a passion for the church. I don't know if that's you, but that was, that was true for me. My, both of my parents, my mom and, and dad, gave their whole lives to minister to God's people. I'm so thankful. That, that, that is a legacy that is of incomparable value. You can't put a price tag on it. And they loved the church. They loved the word. They loved the Savior. They loved to worship. They loved God's people. God's broken people. They loved God's broken people. They loved the city where they were planted. And so there's this love for the church, and it came down. We come by it honestly, me and my brother and my sister. The acorn hasn't fallen far from the tree. We were both, it was taught and it was caught. <laughs> You know, if we're in the realm of concern, I think one of my concerns in our cultural moment, particularly in Western evangelicalism, is it's trendy right now to trash the church. It's actually popular to heckle, to, to create social media banter 
about the bride of Jesus. And you can only imagine when you're steeped in the scriptures how Jesus says, you're talking about my bride. Be careful. That's my girl. <laughs> right? I slayed dragons for her. Well, one, I heard one scholar a number of years ago, a team of scholars was collected together and they asked him the question, summarize the whole message of the Bible in one sentence. And my favorite one was a summary of the Bible that simply said this. Here's the story of the Bible in one sentence. Kill the dragon, get the girl. <laughs> Kill the dragon, get the girl. And the girl is the church. That's the bride of Christ. Look, I'm not saying, look, so, so this trend of trash in the church, I'm not saying that the church shouldn't own up where we fall short, where we're in sin, where we need to repent. By all means, yes, our best life is repenting. That's what the church is called to do. Repentance and faith is how we run the race all the way to the end. What I am saying, so that's what I'm not saying, what I am saying is no matter how bad it gets, God never gives up on the church. So if we do that, we're not following Him. I want to remind us tonight from this psalm why the church matters. And maybe, maybe if we had the, the time of just hanging out for coffee tomorrow, you know, and I'm sitting down with you, and maybe you would have the transparency of just saying, this is where I'm at. Honestly, I'm ready to quit. I talked to a lot of pastors right in our city of Birmingham who they're saying, man, I'm hanging by a thread. Like, I could quit tomorrow. I'm so burned out. This is such a tiring time to be a pastor, to be a missionary. And if you and I were sitting down and having that conversation and you said, I'm tempted to quit the ministry, Matt, give me one good reason to keep showing up. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I'll give you four. Four reasons tonight why the church matters. Four reasons why the church is still the horse to back. Number one, the church matters because God comes to church. God comes to church. Look down at your text again. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king within her citadels. God has made himself known as a fortress. You know, our text doesn't progressively build up to its main idea. It puts it right on the front page, right in the very first verse. Verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's what the psalm is gunning for. That the great God would get his great praise among his people. There is a, a praise that is, must be commensurate to the greatness of God. That's why it just doesn't just say God is great. It says God is great and he must be greatly praised. Not apathetically praised, not half-heartedly praised, not conveniently praised, greatly praised. All in worship from his people, because he is great, his praise must be great. In other words, you should be able to look at every local church where the gospel is preached. You should be able to look at the church getting its worship on this Sunday, and you should be able to say, their God must be great. If you're an outsider coming in and you listen to the people get their worship on, you should say, I don't know what they're about, but their God must be awesome. Yes. Because listen to the sound of the singing of the people. 
Look at the hunger in their faces as they break open the book to look at the glory of their God. Oh, may that mark every church in this room, every, every missionary enterprise in this room. Note, this psalm doesn't just begin by telling us that God is great. It tells us God reveals his greatness in a certain place. See it? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. You see that language, it just jumps off the page. Keep your eye on the text. His holy mountain, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. These are poetic references to what? To Jerusalem. Place where God's people gathered to worship, right? Jerusalem was, a, was surrounded by valleys on three sides. It was quite literally a city set on a hill. It was that place that speaks of Mount Zion as beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth. So, so as a kid, our, our church, we, um, we sang a song. Maybe you sang this song. It was real popular, like 80s and 90s. It might go back further than that, but we sang a song in church growing up. And it was inspired by Psalm 48. We're marching to Zion. You know it? Beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, that beautiful city. Of God. And our church would sing that song and we'd sing it over and over and then they'd modulate and bump it up a couple keys and then we'd sing it again, right? And I, even as a kid, I'm thinking, all right, I like the sound of this song, but when do we actually get to Zion? Because we have been marching for who knows how long, right? Are we getting any closer to Zion? But what the, the deeper question I didn't know to ask when I was that young, but I started to ask later on is, what makes us want to march to Zion in the first place? What's so awesome about Zion? There are places in the world that they show up on the radar of kids, for example. You say, Orlando. Disney, right? We're going to Orlando. We're going to Disney, right? So you could get excited about marching to Disney. Why would we sing a song over and over about marching to Zion? What's so great about Zion. And the answer in our text is the greatness that is bound up in Zion is that God is there. He lives there. He inhabits the praises of His people as they worship. He dwells among them. Within, verse 5, look at it. Within her citadels, God has made Himself known as a what? Fortress. A stronghold. You think about it. So God's normal way of revealing himself, that's what this text is talking about. God reveals himself in the city of Zion as a fortress. The normal way of God revealing himself is not, you know, to send an angel to each person on planet Earth and say, sit down, let me tell you about the cross. Or sit down, let me tell you about my glory. That's, that's usually not the way it plays out. That's not the normal way it plays out. The normal way it plays out is he gathers a people. He says, come, bask in my presence. Come together, people of the covenant. And he reveals himself through his word and through his spirit in ways that wake us up to his glory, that wake us up to the joy that we know in him. That's the normal way God works in the world. So for example, you think about the story of the Exodus. And what happens? God says, Moses, go get the people. 
Take them out. I'm going to overcome Egypt. I'm tired of them being under the oppressive thumb of Pharaoh. It ends now. Go get them, right? And Moses says, you're coming with me. And Pharaoh says, oh, no, they're not. And he says, well, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, right? And the hard way is about ten ways. And one after another after another, God is just flicking over the gods of Egypt and says, one way, I'm telling you, by hook or by crook, I'm bringing them with me. And what does God do? Then he saves the people and he, he causes the waters to stand up like walls on either side and they pass through on dry ground. Egyptian army comes through and God closes up. And then what happens? In Exodus 15, you have the very first song in the Bible. It's the song, Miriam breaks out the tambourine. She says, it's time to sing. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea. And the whole Egyptian army is bobbing in the background of the waters of the Red Sea, and the people are singing. God did this. God saved us from powers that are way too strong for us. God, only God and his grace can explain the freedom we know now. God loves to do that. God loves to make himself known to us again and again as we gather to sing, we gather to pray, we gather to hear his word preached. So gatherings of worship that are marinated in the word of God, that's how God builds his people. That's how he makes his people strong. The Puritans 300 years ago, they said, what do we do when we gather? We read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible. It's marinated, it's saturated in scripture. Why? Because God knows how to build a believer and he builds believers in his word. And throughout my whole life, I can say I've experienced Psalm 48. I've experienced this verse in worship gatherings. If, I asked, if you ask me the question, we're just talking together about the church, we're talking about stories, and I ask you about your story, and then you ask me about my story. And if you said, Matt, how do you know God? I can't answer that question without reference. To one of the most meaningful answers I know is, how do I know God? My parents brought me to church. And I learned the word of God and I sang the songs and I watched God putting hope into people and I watched God putting joy and he was lighting their faces. They were radiant with joy as they sang. And I just, sometimes I would just people watch as a seven or eight year old. And I remember, I remember sitting right there in our church building and I looked right over here. I remember seeing Wayne Jordina sat right, remember Paul? He sat right there and I watched Wayne and I watched Stan Holmes and I watched... Sister Dottie, I watched them while they worshipped and I thought, it's real. God's doing something real in these people's lives. And I, I stood next to Sister Melinda Taylor and she taught me how to sing alto because my voice hadn't changed yet. So I could sing alto right there with Sister Melinda Taylor, right? And then Miss Honey Cotterman taught me in Sunday school. She taught my children's church class. She told me what a Pharisee was. She taught me, literally she taught me how to tie my shoes and she taught me the Lord's Prayer. And in all of those things, great and small, what was happening? Psalm 48 was happening. God was making himself known to me as a fortress. He was revealing something of his glory, something of his goodness. Friends, God is everywhere present. We have a word for that, right? Omnipresent. God is everywhere present, but God's schedule is preset. On Sunday morning, he's coming to church. It's what he's been doing all the way back to the beginning. And particularly, it's what he started doing on that greatest Sunday of all Sundays, the Sunday that launched a thousand Sundays, Easter Sunday. 
God gathers with his people. So he comes to church too. God rescues the church. God rescues the church. I love how verse 4 tells this story, right, of how God delivered his people when they were surrounded by powers that were too strong for them. So look at the text with me. Behold, kings assembled, they came on together. These kings are bad kings. This is not a good assembly. This is an assembly against the people of God. As soon as they saw it, so there's something these kings who were storming, like the 82nd Airborne, there's something they saw and then they turned tail and ran. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them. The them is the kings. The powerful nations against the Lord's people. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarsus. Look, that east wind is legendary in the Old Testament. That east wind explains how the locusts got here. That east wind explains why the water stood up and got out of the way so the people could dry, walk through on dry ground. It was the east wind. And so God has a couple of options, a couple of nuclear options. He has a right arm and he has an east wind. And he deploys them as is necessary. And he deployed that east wind and the kings started running. <laughs> if we do this right, you think about this. There's a sense in which God's people have for 2,000 years been associated with vulnerability. You read the book of Acts. Who's not against them? The Roman Empire, not a fan. The Jewish religious establishment is not a fan. So it's, um, it's a dangerous situation no matter where you go. That's always been the case. God's people have always lived in a, in a sense of the, the hostility of the world. I think it was John Bunyan who said that the Christian can't live life without the wind always being in his face. There's always opposition. There's always pushback in this world. There's persecution against those who would be faithful. There's a sense of, of being subjected to the futility of living in this world. Even though we belong to another kingdom, we live in this fallen kingdom and we feel it, right? We, we feel weakness just like everybody else. We're vulnerable to those kinds of things. You think about how many people might be gathered in your church this Sunday who are hanging on by a thread. On the outside, yeah, they glad-handed everybody at the time that you're supposed to glad-hand everybody, but inside they're literally shattered. They, they, it was like they clawed their way out of bed and clawed their way into the room. Hopeless people. Desperate people. If we do this right, the church sets up shop in the very darkest places. Wherever people have no hope, it's as if God says, that's where I want my church. I want you right at the intersection of the grace of God and the brokenness of this world. Set up shop right there. John Bunyan, he was writing to Christians struggling with hopelessness. I love these words. He says, do not conclude that because thou canst not reach God by thy short stump, therefore he cannot reach thee with his long arm. Look again, he says, hast thou an arm like God? It becomes thee when thou canst not perceive that God is within the reach of thy arm to believe that thou art within the reach of his. For it is long 
and none knows how long. You know what our people need to hear this Sunday? No one has seen the extent of the reach of the arm of the mercy of God. Doesn't matter what you brought with you into the room, you can be changed, you can be healed, you can be cleansed, you can be new, you can be accepted, you can be justified. It's glorious truth. Let me talk about church gatherings for just a moment. So, so what if the gospel was so richly proclaimed and sung in our gatherings that the effect it would have on hopeless and, and desperate people would be basically like this. As the word is held up high, it would be as though Jesus Christ himself is saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus should speak from the pulpit and from the music every Sunday and say, everybody who's tired, everybody who's worn out, come with me. You get to live. You get to breathe. Come with me. Let me forgive everything. Come with me. Let's start again. Nobody has to keep up appearances. Nobody has to fake it to make it. You know what? It's our call. You think about the fact, I think it was Karl Barth. He was asked a question. He was one of the recognized theologians of the 20th century. Controversial in some ways, to be sure. But Karl Barth was asked uh, at a, a seminary gathering. One of the seminarians said, Dr. Barth, um, what's the most important truth that you've learned as a theologian. And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And what does it say after that? Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. You never grow out of that. You never grow out of that. We get to be weak. He gets to be strong. If that's not the religion you want, Christianity is not going to be for you. I said this to our church many times. As long as Jesus sits on the throne at God's right hand, you don't have to come strong. You have a strong Savior, and He runs to the broken, and He runs to the weak. The church is not the company of the awesome. It's the company of the redeemed. Third, so God comes to church. God rescues the church. God loves the church. God loves the church. You know, Solomon completed the construction of the temple in the Old Testament and the Ark of the Covenant, it's set inside the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Is, it's one of the greatest outbursts of volume in worship in the entire Bible. If there were soundtracks in each chapter of the Bible, one of the loudest ones in your entire Bible is 2 Chronicles 5. Because the temple is built, the Ark is there, the sheep and the oxen could not be numbered, all the Levites and the singers are there, and 120 trumpet players. It was just really, really loud. And when you ask, what are they gathering about? What's the thematic center of that loud, awesome gathering of God's people? If you ask that question, it's summarized in two lines in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13. Here's the central theme of their worship. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You read the historical psalm, Psalm 106 and 107. Big, long 
psalms that just tell you the, the tragic story of Israel's failure after failure and God's faithfulness after faithfulness. And it tells you that long story, walks you all the way through the litany of the, of the turning points of Old Testament history. But the heading at the top of both of those psalms is, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Friends, for all the differences between worship in Solomon's time and worship this coming Sunday at your local church, for all those differences, the central theme of the worship of God's people hasn't changed in 3,000 years. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love, in other words, this is what we're saying to each other, His steadfast love explains everything. It explains why we're here. It explains why we're in Christ. It explains why we got this robe. It explains why we're going to heaven. It explains everything, the steadfast love. It's not my love for him that's been so awesome and steadfast. It's his love for us. We love him because what? He first loved us. He was the initiator. Our love is responsive. His love gave birth to ours. The love of God, the great hymn said, is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star. And reaches to the lowest hell. One of the things I love about the writings of the Apostle Paul, it was quoted this morning frequently, uh, was Galatians 2. Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, if you ask Paul for an explanation of his whole identity as an apostle, he says, can you believe it? He loved me. Who can explain why he would love me? I persecuted the church. I was a blasphemer. Why would he ever chase me down? I was chasing his people down. I was throwing them in prison. I was holding the coats for the people who were stoning them. Why me? And Paul never got over it for the rest of his life. He loved me. He gave himself for me. A church steeped in the steadfast love of God, it leads to two awesome things, and we see them right here in our text. God's glory among the nations and God's joy in the church. Look at verse 10. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. So there's God's glory running to the ends of the earth, and then you see the joy of his people. Verse 11, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. It shouldn't surprise us that the people of God have been marked by joy. Scripture tells us that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and what? Joy. The announcement of the arrival of the king, the angels broke the silence in the midnight sky over Bethlehem, and they said, I bring you good news of what? Great joy is coming. And guess what? It's coming for everybody. There's joy enough for the wide world, and it's found in this one you're going to see in the manger. Even when you read other places in Scripture, like, like Acts chapter 8. I love this verse, Acts chapter 8. 8 verse 4, I'll read it to you. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. 
And then the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Notice the summary verse of what happened in the city where the gospel went. So there was much joy in that city. That's the writer of Acts' way of saying, wherever the gospel goes, joy goes. When the gospel reached the city, the city rejoiced. That should not be any surprise. Missions is the gospel in tennis shoes. Missions is joy on the run. And it just keeps going further and further and further out. The church is worth the effort. Church matters because, number one, God comes to church, God rescues the church, God loves the church, and fourth, God sustains the church. Verse 12, look at it with me. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever, he will guide us forever. The church truly is a place of belonging. It's a city on a hill. You can't be a city by yourself. It's a city on a hill. The worship of God in this community, you see here in these last verses, is the deepest identity of the people of God. This is where they belonged. I grew up in, in New Orleans, and I went to lots of um, Mardi Gras parades. We went to the, the safe side of town where the Mardi Gras parades weren't everybody sauced and cursing and all, all of that. It was just my, my dad would put us on his shoulders. We'd say, throw me something, mister. We'd go home with beads and king cake, right? So it, there was fun to be had by all. And, um, but I would watch those floats go by. And I would watch band after band, and they would be dressed in their whole band regalia, and they're playing, you know, Proud Mary or whatever song the bands were playing in those days. And I would just look on, just like, that looks so awesome. And then in middle school, I was in the Adams Middle School Band, John Quincy Adams Middle School Band. And um, for whatever reason, our band got chosen to march for Mardi Gras, for one of the parades on, on veterans, the very same place where I would all, often stand on Veterans Boulevard. And, and I remember that night, I was so cold. My teeth were chattering. Between, it was so cold outside. It was impossibly cold. But I was over the moon joyous because for the first time in my life, I was on the inside. I wasn't watching some parade go by. I was wearing the suit. I was holding my own horn. I was making the music. That's what's happening here at the end of this text. It's, it's an actual liturgy. A number of Old Testament scholars believe that this, this text would have been an annual liturgical event where the people would actually walk through the city singing Psalm 48, numbering the towers and saying, look at what God has done. Look at how he has shielded us. And these, the, the actual city itself would be a kind of sacrament, an outward sign of an inward reality. They would put their hand on palpable, tangible things and say, this represents something God has done for us over the centuries. He's guarded us. He's kept us. This is the place. We got our roots in this place. 
They're not spectators. They're in the procession. They're in the parade. They're carrying the banners. They belong to Zion. And here's one of the things I love about our text, and I'm going to finish in just just a minute. It's not just enough that they count the blessings. Verse 13, they have to tell the kids about it. They have to tell the next generation about it. They have to teach another generation to count the blessings as well. They have the privilege of taking their sons and daughters. I hear you, Chad, just saying, I want my kids to catch it. I want my kids to catch it. The privilege of taking them by the hand, walking them through the life of the church and saying, son, daughter, why would you serve anyone else? This is God. He moves here. He changes people right here. Let's worship him together. Let's see him together. Let's open his word together. Destiny Church isn't done counting the deeds of the great God who dwells with his people. Living Waters Church, where my brother pastors, is not finished counting the deeds of the faithful God who dwells with his people. The Church of Brook Hills isn't done counting the deeds of the faithful God who dwells with his people. The parting words of this psalm are, you see it, he will guide us forever. (laughs) 60 years of this missions conference. 60 years. What a legacy. 80 years of this church and God's just getting started. (laughs) The presence of God among the people of God fuels the mission of God. Amen? Join me. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we pray that this truth would find itself in in deep places in our lives. It would create healthy followers of Jesus, healthy, holy churches, advancing the mission of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Do great things that you alone will get the glory for now and in the age to come. We will sing songs in the streets of Zion for things you start doing here, now, this week, this month, this year, and in coming years. May your face shine on every church represented here. May your face shine on every missionary and worker, every church member who serves you day in and day out. May your people know blessing beyond anything we could ask or think or imagine. All for the glory of the one whose name matters the most, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. And the church said, amen. Amen.